This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. So welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I am in Tampa, Florida right now, and I am super, super excited because I am in the office of Mark Greenberg. Anybody listening to this podcast knows that Mark Greenberg wrote the Handbook of Neurosurgery. It is the Bible for our trainees. I can't think of anybody I know who doesn't have at least one copy. I have multiple copies over multiple editions. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate the opportunity. So first, tell us just quickly uh, where you're at, what you're doing in terms of your professional life, you know, so people get an idea. So I... um we just had a really enjoyable lecture from Dr. Wang on the seven stages of the career, and I am certainly at the later stages, and I'll put it that way. So I have a little bit of perspective on things and sort of an idea going forward. But um, I'm in practice, I'm an associate professor at the University of South Florida. Uh, I spend one day a week at the Veterans Hospital here, and the other times I'm at the main teaching hospital, which is Tampa General Hospital. My practice is primarily spine, but when I uh, am on call, I will do the, obviously, the subdurals and the uh, fractures, spine fractures, but I'll also do glioma surgery and convexium meningiomas and that type of thing. Just because I loved it so much, when I went into practice after graduating, I really didn't see myself as being an academic neurosurgeon. I wanted to have a general practice. So um, I didn't restrict myself and, and did that for, enjoyed it for 15 years and then switched over to academia. So tell us just briefly about how you got started, where you went to college, medical school, residency and all that. So I think the, uh, you know, so first of all, I do have a talk of, uh, on this and I am going to be giving it at the Southern Neurosurgical society meeting, so if anybody has the opportunity to go there, they can hear, hear the full talk and see the slides. But Great. I think the important things are that, are that uh, I started off in electrical engineering at Purdue University, and uh, I worked summers, uh, I had a, like a, it was a work study program, I worked summers designing some uh, electronic systems for some machines, which I enjoyed. Tech, uh, the uh, intellectual challenge was fun. But the payoff at the end was just not making it for me. Um, you know, you have a machine that could create a can for a beer, which I, I admit is important. <laughs> but it just wasn't the kind of uh, personal satisfaction that I was looking for. And you didn't want to be an astronaut because that's where all the astronauts come from, right? <laughs> Purdue, right? <laughs> there, were, there were quite a few, yeah. Um, so and also uh, Orville, uh, Orville Redenbacher, I think, is okay. from, from popcorn too. Uh, but um, so I started off in electrical engineering, and I would say at that time uh, got it got me exposure to computers before anybody had uh, or any significant number of people had a personal computer, and uh, that became important because later on. Uh, my familiarity with computers and my exposure to them is what allowed me to start compiling my book. So got my uh, double E degree. Um, I decided that um, I really was kind of maybe more interested in the, I, I thought like a biomedical engineering would be a good melding of my engineering and my, an interest in something I thought would be have a little bit more impact. So I did 
I went to Northwestern University Graduate School in Biomedical Engineering, and I quickly realized that um, the electrical engineering was helpful. Biomedical engineering at that time was probably, didn't qualify you really to design anything specifically, unless you had a basic, uh, sort of a classic engineering background like I did, like electrical engineering. So really it was, you had familiarity with other things, but it wasn't really enough to go with it. And that's when I decided to apply to medical school. Great. And where did you go to medical school? Uh, Northwestern. Oh, Northwestern. And then uh, residency? Uh, University of Cincinnati. Okay. With... So let's start there because that, I, the amazing story I heard yesterday, Dr. Van Lovern, who's been on this podcast, was talking about the genesis of the book. So you want to tell people about how this even started and, and, and just an idea, right? As an idea of what was needed. Yeah, well, actually, when I was a medical student, um, when we rotated on the uh, cardiovascular surgery service, they handed us a little red book. It was uh, saddle stapled, so it had, you know, it was folded over in half with a staple down the middle, put together by the department, and they had some, uh, first of all, first page, it told you when rounds started and uh, what you were expected to, to do. Then it had the names of the different attendings, and it told you that this guy does not like night pride, and this guy wants this, and so it had some of those particulars. And then it had some diagrams that I had never seen before. It was detailed anatomy of the circulation of the heart. You know, we all sort of learned the main ones, you know, the, that we all learn in medical school anatomy, but uh, this had the details that you would really need to have to really understand how to do uh, a coronary artery bypass. So, uh, and then it had formulas, you know, all the, the cardiac output and all that stuff, and then it had a listing of drugs. And I thought this was like fantastic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I went through medical school and started getting interested in different specialties, usually I got interested in whatever specialty I was doing at the time. I thought, you know, this is great. I want to be a mm -hmm. cardiologist, I want to be a OBGYN. Then, but I think my first love was the nervous system. Um, and being an electrical engineer, it was I felt right at home. It was circuits, you know, this connects to that, and you know, this is, and you know, and, and I was always pretty right-brained. I built things, so I mean, I was not just uh, just the, the study, the uh, you know, theoretical things. And um, so I eventually, you know, I actually kind of denied my interest in neurosurgery at first, just because I thought, you know, it seems too hard. Uh, I don't know if I would want to do that, but then um, through some mentors in medical school, I became interested in it. And I thought I would like to put together a book like that little red book the cardiovascular surgeons handed us. And I felt I felt I could do it. And, uh, you know, somehow, even back then, I thought that I might be able to do it in a way that it would be something that would be widely useful. So that's how it started in medical school. I got that idea. Now, Harry Van Lover was telling a story about you guys were trying to drop some drugs and trying to figure out the dosing of it. Well, so uh, the, so I went through a phase where I thought, um, you know, I'm going to write this book. And uh, then I kind of adopted the philosophy that, you know what, if you do something often enough, you know it and you'll learn it. You don't have to, you know, and... If you don't know it, you can always look it up. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, that's, you know, so I don't really don't need to write this book because why do you need it? You know, you can either, either you know it or you can find out. So we had a belligerent patient uh, one night that needed a CAT scan. That wasn't the day when the CAT scans were slow. So you had to have the patient hold still. And um, he was, it was a, he had a traumatic brain injury. So he was, uh, you know, th thrashing around and, um, 
we had a we need we needed to sedate him. Now we all used Brevitol for our microvascular decompressions, but what we would do is we would say to the anesthesiologist, "Okay, give him, mm-hmm. give him some Brevitol," and then the patient would go down. And we'd do our lesion. So now here we were in the middle of the night uh, in the CAT scan room, trying to get a CAT scan on this guy who wouldn't cooperate. And we said, "Okay, well, just give him some Brevitol." We said, "Great. What's the dose?" None of us knew it. <laughs> so there's no internet, of course, back at that time, and no textbooks that you could refer to. So we got the product insert. You know, we ordered the Brevitol, came down, you open up the package, and there's this, you know, if you've seen a product insert, it's printed on, like, tissue-thin paper. The writing is microscopic. <laughs> right. And it doesn't just come out and tell you what you need to know. you got to read the black box warning, and you got to go through all this. So we knew we wanted it. We just needed to know how to mix it up. So Quickly, too. Yes. Yeah. So that's when I realized that you can't always look things up quickly very easily. You can't, not reliably. So then I sort of got reinvigorated in putting together the book because then I thought, yeah, there is a need to have the ability to look up things quickly, you know, when you need it. So that's Now, what, you know, I was in Van Leveren's office and he pulled out some old copies and the, some pictures of those can be found on our social media page. But I would say that it's fascinating to me because it really did start organically, right? That you had built upon a framework and... One of the great things you did was have an amazing index, right? The index is really critical. Yes. I'm glad you recognize that. Yeah. Because you can have all the great information in the world, but if the index isn't any good, you can't find it. Because I've used it. And, and, and let me ask you a weird question. Have you ever used your own book? Have you ever pulled it out to the reference? I do that a lot. And my first thing usually is to start at the index. Just be, Well, the first versions of my book were the sections were semi-alphabetical. So I could find things quickly that way because I knew I knew what I was looking for. But I always looked at the index and I thought, I want to see if I can find it in the index. And sometimes I'd say, oh, how come that isn't here? And then I would go back and – because I was doing this all myself uh, myself on a desktop publishing. on a Yeah, we're old word processor. Yeah. 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 Well, so what's the – so going to – so published internally in Cincinnati just by hand. Yeah. And being bound and I, I there's, a, there's a picture of the spiral bound version, which is the first – I took that to Kinko's. Okay, Kinko's. If anybody knows what Kinko's is, copy store. Well, now it's uh, FedEx bought them. Oh, that's right. That's right. So, Kinko's FedEx, so, yeah. So what's the first year? I, was Tima your first real publisher? Well, they were my first real publisher, but that was the fifth edition. I had already done it. Oh, uh, and I approached okay. a couple of publishers, by the way. And this, is, I think, is, uh, is you know, something that I would want to emphasize. And that is, you know, people turn me down. They said, oh, the audience is too small. And... Uh, and uh, this is where I would say, and I was telling you about this um, podcast called How I Built This by mm-hmm. Guy Raz, and they look at people who have started these things that we all know, uh, you know, Uber and Lyft and all these, uh, even Grey Goose Vodka. If you want to listen to a good episode, okay, listen yeah. to that one. So, um, so I would say all the thing that all these businesses that we take for granted, you think it sort of sprang out of nowhere, but it's really fascinating to hear the journey that these people were on and how many failures they had. It's, you know, it's the Edison light bulb story, you know, how many failures they had before they had a success. Um, but um, so when I was told that, you know, nobody was interested, um, I said uh, I was actually kind of glad because I'm a little bit of a control freak and I wanted to be able to do it myself mm-hmm. and do it the way I wanted to do it and put things in that I thought were interesting. And 
So um, I, that's when I decided to publish it myself. Just so there's a passion that's involved in all these uh, uh, businesses that become, you know, that we all know that somebody probably had that made it. No, so this is a very interesting thing because you're on your ninth edition of the current printing, right? Yes. And you're going to have a tenth, obviously. I want to say this is the most bought and sold neurosurgery book in history, and I'm pretty sure of that. How many copies do you think have been published? Well, you know, when I when I uh, was publishing myself, I knew the, the number to a to a single unit. But now, with the uh, basically, I get a report once a year from Tima, and um, it's a royalty check. And um, you know, I really don't track the numbers. You know, it's got to be hundreds of thousands. I don't doubt it's that many, but. Um, but you know, I look at the as the sales statistics. You know, you can only get a limited number amount of information, uh, and Tima even is is a little bit uh, plays a little closer to chest. I think as all the publishers well, do. But. I've edited fifteen books, okay, but it's nothing like what you do. I, I get a bunch yeah. of authors. They put in chapters. I organize it. You actually wrote this book, right? I mean, you you've modified it year on year on year. You really work hard on this, obviously, right? To make sure there's no mistakes. Um, to the limit of what's humanly possible, right? I mean, the, the detail of it is very concise language, and it's not easy. It's not easy to keep this book corralled, right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, at first I used to, uh, the, I used to grammatically, you know, just have sentence fragments. Uh, didn't really write in mm -hmm. full sentences, and I just, my excuse was I wanted to keep the book small. But then after a while, now it's so crazy big that I don't even worry about that. Excuse me. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, the idea was to try to be concise, but one of my, one of my friends, uh, once said to me, he says, the problem with most books is, uh, they're, they're, let me see, he said it, they're too short and they don't go into enough detail or something like that. <laughs> um, well, I remember the edition, was it seventh or eighth where you split into two books? Yeah. And then it was like, okay, I got to put one book in each pocket, <laughs> right? And then now that the ninth is very thick, right? Yeah. It's big. Yeah. So what are you going to do about it? Like, how are you going to keep it as a handbook? Um, well, I don't even think they call it. I mean, even though the title is handbook, I think now if you look at the, um, co the sales copy, it says backpack friendly. <laughs> if you, I have, uh, as we're sitting here, I have a copy of my second edition that I'm giving to, to Mike. And um, the size of this is not a standard print size. And every time I went, by the way, I had this printed myself by a publisher in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Oh, so it's not Tima. No, no, this is Greenberg oh, Graphics. Okay, okay. I was the publisher. So those are hard to get. The older ones that people want because they fit in your pocket. Yeah. This was not a standard copy size, and I can yeah. tell you how this copy size came yeah, tell about. Yeah, us, tell us. I had a white coat, uh -huh. and I started cutting out, uh, uh, I think it was styrofoam, uh -huh. to see what would fit in a white coat pocket. Oh, my. That's classic engineering. Yeah. 101, right? So every time I would go, to, I would, I'd call a printer, they'd say, well, that's not a standard trim size. I say, I know, but this is the size I want. Yes. So, I mean, there's a few things you give up control of when you go with a publisher. And that was, first thing to go was, we don't publish in non-standard trim sizes. It's, okay, so I want to come back to that publishing thing because yeah. this trend, which I don't entirely like for some old school reasons about, everybody just does everything online. I'm going to venture to guess that if there's one book that should remain, and I do love books to be in print, but I will think that this will probably be the longest durability of a book in print in neurosurgery. Hmm. If anything has to be in print, it's this one. 
over all the other textbooks and atlases, I think. What is your opinion about, is there, there's no online version of Greenberg, right? There is, uh, the team does have it on their Med 1. Um, okay. They have a, a ver, it's electronic version. It's not what I would envision, and I can tell you, um, just when I wrote this book, I wrote it uh, because there was nothing out there that fit the need that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look at some of the, uh, there was actually, a, a, you know, it was a, Alan Friedman had written a book called The Nurse Surgery for the House Staff Officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, uh, you know, we all used the Washington Manual and Harriet Lane when we were going through internal right. medicine and pediatrics. So I thought, well, where's the neurosurgery version of this? And that neurosurgery for the house staff officer was a great initial effort, but the detail wasn't there. But to me, it's not just that it's like a lot of stuff condensed that fits in your pocket. The way it's written, like whenever you need the information for something that happens, because you've lived through this, somehow you open Greenberg, and somehow the information is there in the form that it needs to be. In other words, the delivery of that information is packaged properly for digestion. That's how I felt about it. Like you said, you okay. could look it up somewhere, but if you need it quickly and then you needed the relevant thing, like you're, like you're reading the minds of the reader, you know, what, what's the question they're gonna ask, right? And it's there. Well, I've heard a saying that uh, the best books are written for an audience of one, and I wrote this book for myself. So, so let, let me ask about something that we kind of got into a, l- a little bit earlier yesterday in the, sur- in the doctor's lounge here. This concept of, of, of quoting Greenberg when you're taking your boards. <laughs> I know you don't want to get controversial, but it's such an interesting concept because it has such a cultural influence on us. Like, like you're taking the oral boards and <laughs> say, well, why would you do that? And I'm like, well, it's in Greenberg. I mean, that's got to make you feel good, right? Oh, it's incredible. and That's something I never pictured at all. Yeah. I mean, it really is a testament to... Um, to, to what you've done. And I'm going to advise anybody out there who's not a neurosurgeon who doesn't know what we're talking about, go out and get yourself a copy. And it could be any edition of a Greenberg, Mark S. Greenberg's Handbook of Neurosurgery. It's now published by Tima, T-H-I-E-M-E. It is the best money any neurosurgeon has ever spent in their life. I can tell you personally. I have so many editions of it. Um, is there anything you want to say to our audience about the use of this tool. I'll call it a tool or a computer. It's a computer, right? How, is there any advice you give to people? Like, I wish you'd use it this way. Um, well, so one of my goals was to make a book that wasn't just a cookbook, so I didn't want to have it like too uh, cut and dry. I wanted to, you know, when, when things were controversial, I wanted to include that. I wanted to include references so you could see where did this come from? So I, I have thousands of references in there now, which, by the way, my first edition, first few editions, I had a database that I built myself, mm. uh, wrote myself. There was no no uh, endnote. No yeah. end um, so and then that was another uh, place where I had to have economy of words. But um, so if I had, you know, my dream would be that if somebody needed some information that they needed quickly, that this would be a reliable source of information that would then also act as a gateway to the literature on it and also maybe even to understand some of the uh, controversy that we don't know. One of the criticisms of one of my books, somebody said, I don't know why they say this, you know, because they say it could be this or that, you know, the authors really need to make a, authors, plural, authors need to make a, you know, 
a clear uh, stance on it. It's like, well, when it's, when it's not a clear stance, no, I'm not going to. And hopefully that would help you to understand that uh, what you're doing may or may not be the only choice or best choice. So yeah, I would. it's not meant to be a, a you know, the end point. I think it's a mistake to think if you've just read this that you've You've read it all, obviously. So it's a, hopefully a gateway into the literature. Yeah, I personally think that what you've done has saved hundreds or thousands of lives directly. Uh, just to have the information available when people need it, to make it accessible so people aren't afraid of it. All these elements make us better neurosurgeons. And I do want to close and respect your time by asking you about the artwork in your book. My understanding is you do most of your own drawings, right? I do it all. You do it all? All those diagrams? Yes. Now, having said that, uh, many of them are based heavily on illustrations that I've seen where I take, where I think something is missing from it, or I think that these two illustrations together would show the information that I want, then I, but I do it all myself in Adobe Illustrator. Sure, but they're beautiful. I mean, they're, they really are, the, 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 the economy of the drawings, too. It's the essence, like, you know, they're not intended to be artistic, right? They're representative, but they, they give you what you need to see. I almost don't like the newer ones that are in color as much. I like those line drawings you oh. did early on. Those are truly, I mean, I, they're, they're burned into my brain, you know? That, so, so Mark, I wanna respect your time. Um, you know, you have been a, a stalwart of our field, great contributor. Uh, I hope to see many, many more additions. And is someone gonna take over for this as you peel away? Like our, it's not gonna. It's not gonna end when you stop doing this, right? Right. Yes. There's. Yeah. There's going to be some succession, um, but yes. Yet unrevealed because you have a lot of years to go with this. But I, <laughs> I, I hope. think it's fantastic. It is truly amazing. Thank you for taking the time to share this with us. Yeah. Can I still say one last word of encouragement? Um, I am very confident in saying that if I was applying to neurosurgery today, I would not get in. Um, I think that uh, I was given a chance by somebody, uh, Dr. John Tu, who uh, saw something in me, he liked me, but I can tell you that uh, I am awed every day by the intelligence and resourcefulness and talent of the neurosurgery residents that we have coming through. And I really think that maybe one of the reasons why I wrote this book was that I needed some I needed some way to organize this in my head that I just was having trouble wrapping around all the different, it seemed like there was an infinite number of craniotomies and, and all these different drugs and I couldn't get a handle on it. So it gave me the ability to tame the information. But I would say that, um, you know, it, we all have gifts that we can uh, provide. And, you know, if we, if we ended up all being the same, uh, something like this would never have gotten written. It was written by somebody who, had some insecurities and un, you know, was unsure of things. And uh, just as an engineer, I was um, good at organizing things and putting it in a logical, I think a logical uh, means of accessing it. And uh, there isn't a lot of, there is not a, there's very little original in the book. It's a compilation of um, a lot of things. Well, so, my wife had the chance to meet you last night. She was overjoyed because she's read this book. Uh, the impact is immense. Thank you again. You've done so much, and you're going to continue to do more for us, so we are so appreciative. 
So once again, if you want to meet Mark Greenberg, please come and listen to him live. He will be lecturing this year, this fall, at the Florida Neurosurgical Society. That meeting will be in the uh, fall of 2022 at the Breakers Hotel in West Palm Beach. Mark is being celebrated. We'd love to see you there. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.